Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and war games. And other things. I'm the host, Troy. My pronouns are he, him. And joining me, as always, my co-host... And I'm Ed. My pronouns are they and them. Uh, I've still got no snappy intro jokes for this week. And this week, our topic is science fiction and science fiction settings. And generally, you know, what makes a science fiction setting good for games? Why are some science fiction settings popular and respected? Why are some not so much? Uh, why, why do some science fiction settings have a lot of really good games in them? And why do some science fiction settings, despite being, you know, good settings, and not have a lot of games? We will discuss all these questions and more. And, you know, discuss a bunch of cool science fiction settings because that's something I'm into. Huzzah! But before we do, we have a segment on this podcast called The Week in Hobby. I'll go first. Uh, my week's been pretty straightforward. I was house-sitting a bunch, so I didn't do a lot of things that I might normally do. I did still run two D&D games in the first Eberron campaign. Uh, they, the party uh, just descended into a dungeon that, you know, they're doing some dungeon crawling. They fought a few different things. They're realizing that there's a lot of undead in this dungeon, and there's some statues with, like, dried blood in bowls. And uh, they're like, ooh, there's something something weird going on here. And a, a door that's, like, magically sealed, and yeah. I don't know, I was going to say, uh, statues with dr- bowls of dried blood, that's, that's pretty normal for uh, your dungeon. That's just your standard decor. Yeah, uh, they did kind of this weird thing with the dungeon where they made a... Like, they traveled across it in, like, a left to right, top to bottom, just kind of making a diagonal line across, and they didn't go into, like, half the rooms. They just sort of wandered around. Well, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Yeah, they didn't really make a straight line. They just kind of zigzagged and skipped a bunch of stuff. So there's a bunch of doors that they didn't go through that would have explained some of the what was going on in the dungeon if they had they might have uh, learned a little more about why there's that door that's magically sealed what all the statues are about like is there a link between these things why why is this thing chained up etc um and you know figured out perhaps that the rakshasa who is currently in charge of the dungeon the one they're looking for and they like, walked right past the door that leads to his area. Um, it just took it over from a vampire that he imprisoned. Bro, you just skipped so all you, the lore. Uh, like, they skipped all the rooms that had that important information in them. Uh, it It's funny. Uh, I'm sure they'll get to those rooms in the next session. But it, I just found it very entertaining that they walked right past all the rooms that this might have come into play. 
Also, it meant they didn't fight the vampire spawn, but, you know, that's uh, equally entertaining. Uh, the other group sort of had a filler session where they fought in a arena fight, another arena fight to try and make some money. Uh, this time, it was a tag team match uh, between the Artificer and the Cleric on the party's side and an Artificer and a Monk on the uh, NPCs that they were fighting. Did the Artificer give uh, the Monk mechanical fists? No, but the Artificer did. Um, part of the rules was that you weren't allowed to cast offensive spells into the arena. Um, so the Artificer started casting Minor Illusion and creating chairs inside the <laughs> arena. Uh, to, to Initially, it tricked the player into like trying to grab a chair to hit someone with. <laughs> hit him with the chair! Yes, hit him with the chair. So that, that they were basically doing that. Um, the monk and the artificer, you know, eventually lost, but it was a long and close fight. Um, and then the party set off, having made a bunch of money, the party set off to go and explore the dungeon they've got to explore to find certain artifacts that they need. Uh, good kind of filler session because one of the players was like an hour and a half late because they forgot that the session was happening. Oops. And then I played a short session in another game on Saturday. But Ed, what was your weekend hobby like? Yay. Um, it feels like it was uneventful. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. All I know is that I've been working overtime this week, so it all just kind of blends together. Um, D&D made a return because I was able to get myself enough together to actually run the game. So that one was kind of a short, not necessarily filler, but just a short day of gaming. Um, I finished the cavalry unit that I was working on. So that's officially the last unit of the Lannister army finished. The only thing that's left to do is two of the non-combat characters. Um, I'm undecided as to what my next project is going to be. It's possibly going to be Stargrave because I have all that printed out, but I've also been trying to focus on stuff that's actually going to get played. So I'm a little bit undecided at the moment, but I've got time to decide, I assume. Uh, still playing Blood Bowl. My Amazon team got absolutely murdered by the dwarves because uh, they had the Death Roller secret weapon and it just rolls over your players and chews them up. Um, next game is also against Dwarves, so it's probably going to happen again. And then last week, we actually did some in-person games, played X-Wing and Infinity. Uh, I got stomped on both of those matches for X-Wing. I had two medium ships and a small ship, and it was like trying to... Uh, race F1 cars while being in a semi-truck is about the best thing that I can do to describe that. Um, yeah, Mandalorian can't outfly a TIE Defender in any situation. And then also played Infinity, which I forgot how 
brutal that game is. Um, if you don't know what you're doing or you don't know what you want to do, you're just going to absolutely get stomped to the curb. And I completely forgotten about that. So all of my dudes just ended up clustered behind a stack of shipping crates and just all got shot to death. So maybe I'll work on some of the infinity stuff again. They all didn't magically fall apart as uh, I moved them across the table, which was very surprising. Yeah, that was impressive. Yeah, it's a game that I like. It's just a game that's very difficult. I think because it's just so different from a lot of other miniature games out there. Um, yeah, I think it helps to remember that... Um, well, it's designed to feel more like... I, I, I don't want to say realistic small unit combat, but I feel like more... More along the lines of, like, a video game style of, like, first-person shooter, squad-based combat kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like, you always gotta be moving. If you're not moving, you've gotta be shooting. If you're not shooting, you've gotta be moving. Everybody has a role that they need to fill, and if if they done goof that up, it's gonna be bad times. Like when my uh, little heel bots ran out to try and go repair their teammates and just got shot dead trying to cross an alleyway. The thing I actually compare it most to is XCOM in terms of like high risk, high reward type of gameplay. Yes, it, it, it does feel a lot like XCOM. Um, and I'll say one of the things that, uh, I think you can improve on, especially having, you know, been the other player in that game was that, um, When you want to do something, like, uh, for example, get your heal bots out to heal a guy, what you need to do first is figure out, okay, who's covering that and how do I kill that person? Yeah, and, you know, like having somebody who can be there to make sure that if somebody does shoot at the heal bot and, you know, poke their head out, they're somewhat equally at risk of getting... Uh, popped if they decide to go go that route yeah you you need to like clear the area so that the heel bot can go do its job yeah also just need to kind of redo the army list because i just pick dudes on the uh basis of this guy looks cool i'm gonna go with him so i have a lot of very specialist units which is what the LF team specializes in. They have a lot of special operators and all that. And it's not super helpful all the time because you get really fragile dudes who have a job that they're needing to do. They're not necessarily there just to shoot, which is pretty much what your entire force is there to do. They're there to lay down lead. Yes, I have many guns. Yep. So at some point, if I can find miniatures or proxies, because... Infinity stuff can be a pain to get a hold of. Um, I want to get just some more shooty guys, some more kill bots, rather than a whole bunch of uh, uh, specialists. Fancy hackers. Yep. Yeah, I'll also say, um, unlike a lot of other games, in Infinity, you really need to start with your miniatures already in cover. Yeah. 
I had kind of forgotten that, and I'm just like, I don't know, I'm just going to place these dudes here and assume that they're going to run for cover later. <clears throat> that did not yeah. happen. Um, my my ability to have one of my guys just, like, walk in from the side of the map and start shooting up your entire force was kind of, no, kind of silly. No, my motorcycle. Yeah, the motorcycle that came around the corner and got shot by, like, three people and exploded immediately was, yeah. I mean, it made for a good cinematic moment. Yeah, it, it's just sad that it happened on their very first move. Yep. So yeah, but it's been yeah. weekend hobby's been kind of all over the place. But we actually got to play that stuff in person. Hooray! Hopefully there'll be more to come soon. Uh, I was thinking maybe doing Space Hulk as an as a new project since I already have half of the Space Hulk stuff finished. I just need to finish the Tyranids and some of the extra like objective tat uh, that goes with it. Uh, that might be a good option since we've played that one online before. Um, I don't know how much you're interested in trying out Game of Thrones, but that's at least a very plug-and-play type of game because I don't have to build anything. They're all just in the box, and I just got to pull them out. Yeah, no, if you have all the miniatures painted for it, I'll definitely try it. I have half the miniatures painted. I haven't painted any of the... Uh, the Stark Rebels yet, so one of us would be playing with an unpainted army, but it's at least one thing I like about the game is that it's uh, somewhat accessible. The miniatures are rather inexpensive for a game of an army style like that, and you don't need to do any kind of building because they're all pre-built. The build quality is actually really good. Um, they're color-coded, so even if you decide that you want to be a heretic who doesn't paint their minis they're at least colored according to which house they're supposed to be. So they don't just look like gray plastic. Um, and the detail quality is in a really nice sweet spot between not being bland, but also not being so overly detailed that it's going to be very obvious. If you just paint a swath of Brown in here, it's like, Oh wait, no, those are two different objects on their belt. They should be different colors, which is a habit that a certain other, uh, game company that makes sci-fi miniatures is guilty of. Yep. Sorry, I'm kind of rambling. I don't think I'm quite awake yet. Well, uh, beyond simply hobby and talking in a little bit about science fiction, we will, I think, hit on the Infinity Universe. Huzzah! Our main topic today, science fiction setting. What makes a science fiction setting good for gaming? Um, this is a question. What makes a science fiction setting good for gaming? Ed, your thoughts. Um, I, I'm going to go with just kind of the same thing that makes fantasy settings good for gaming, is that you can just kind of let your imagination run wild and don't really need to necessarily ground your universe in anything that's real unless you're going for a, like a hardcore you know hard sci-fi style game but 
you know, you can kind of do what you want. It's like, do you want to go forward in time with your science fiction or do you want to go back in time and do fantasy or historical? So I'd say it's kind of the same. It just depends on which flavor of game you want. All right. So I have some slightly more detailed thoughts on this. I would assume so, because you're the you're the sci fi nerd of this pair. I'm the fantasy nerd. I am definitely the sci-fi nerd. Uh, so things that make a science fiction setting good for gaming. Uh, first of all, multiple factions. Uh, a good sci-fi setting, one that plays well in games, especially miniatures and role-playing games, is one that has a wide variety of interesting factions for people to play as or belong to or interact with. Uh, examples... 40k Woo! warhammer 40,000 is as much as i one... like to dig on 40k um it's probably my favorite sci-fi universe probably even beating out star wars and star trek it's definitely not my favorite sci-fi universe however it is very popular and a large part of this is the number of potential factions and groups that can be involved you have the variety of alien races and different empires you have all the various human groups that, you know, interact with each other in different ways and have different specialties and different... Um, different ways of shouting for styles, the Styles, different aesthetics. Uh, and then the evil demons, which are... Yeah, I'm not going to explain 40k lore. That's an entire <laughs> episode of its own. That would be, and, that would be my episode. And... Probably anybody who's already listening to this is probably already quite familiar with it anyway, would be my guess, but I don't know you. Perhaps. There are also some fantastic YouTube videos that are like five hours long that explain 40k <laughs> lore. Oh, yes, there are. And I have listened to those entire videos. Yeah. Um, but suffice to say, 40k has a large number of factions, so there's, you know, different options for you to pick from, and... That's the first thing, is having a variety of people to choose from to play as or play with or interact with. Uh, that's good for miniature games. It's good for role-playing games. It's less important for board games. And in fact, settings in general are less important for board games. So we're really not going to talk a lot about board games. Yeah, I can't think no, of any board games we'll off the top of my head that have, like, a super important setting. Unless it's maybe, like, a series of board games, but even then, that's kind of rare. I feel like, of all the board games I know, the one where the setting is the most, like, is the thing that makes the game the most interesting is probably Scythe. Yeah. Um, I would like but... to know more about the Scythe universe. Yeah, it's sort of a, of a post-World War One, uh, yeah, Eastern Europe-esque thing. Um, but so, 40K has a lot of factions, and that makes it interesting. And each faction has their own aesthetic, and there's sort of an overall theme and style going on. But there are plenty of other settings that have that sort of thing. Let's talk about Infinity for a bit. So, Infinity the game is a miniatures game that we play. It's set in a sort of nearer future, uh, several hundred years, I believe, in the future, with, uh, I think, about a dozen 
solar systems that have been uh, colonized from Earth via wormhole. And there are a number of political entities that are the descendants of Earth governments that also rule other planets and like chunks of other planets. And it's got a much more cyberpunk aesthetic with uh, like powered combat armor and hacking and um, genetic engineering and so on and so forth. Plus some alien races that are one of them are kind of conquerors, the other are sort of merchant-ish. Uh, and it's a smaller squad-based thing, but it has a very strong cyberpunk sci-fi, not as space opera-y, but more like, um, more like special ops. Think like, like Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, the, I mean, that's cyberpunk, but it, yeah. it's Ghost in the Shell, but more science fiction, but more in space. Um, I, there are a number of books and stuff that I could reference for it, but it has a, it does have a very heavy anime aesthetic. Um, and its setting is interesting because you have these large political entities and each one kind of specializes in something and they have multiple planets that they operate on and there's a lot of overlap between them. Oh, and there's one planet that's has werewolves and there's all these interesting factions and interesting niche things going on in the universe but it's not as popular as 40k and the lore isn't as deep or as dense and as like heavily developed as the 40k lore is it's also not as it hasn't been around as long so that might have something to do with it yeah i haven't gone looking as much for uh the lore in the background as i should um, because I would definitely be interested to know more about this universe, especially if it's a game that I'm going to continue on with, which despite everything in my brain screaming, do not buy more infinity miniatures. Um, I'll, I'm probably going to keep playing anyway. Yeah. I mean, it, I enjoy infinity and I'd like to play more games and get more stuff done with it. So yeah. I think a lot of it is just um, going to be getting over that learning curve. Yes. Yeah, get, getting through the learning curve and getting into better stuff. Um, so for Infinity Universe, pretty solid. Uh, the setting could use, I think, more development in... Especially in stuff outside of the, like, specific things related to the game just what the rest of the world looks like yeah i think the um, only the only other thing that's kind of like outside the infinity combat uh storyline i guess would be their spin-off game where it's like the gladiator cyberpunk gladiator combat yes i think and that one has some have, more story behind it um there's that there's a board game called defiance oh i didn't know that that they came out with a year or two ago, uh, where essentially it uses the miniatures from the game and you play as a team of people from a variety of the different factions who are escaping from getting captured by an alien spaceship. 
That's actually really cool. I like that. Um, and then there's the Tag Rumble game, which oh, involves yeah, I forgot about tag mining Rumble. robots. Yeah, I want to play Tag Rumble. That looks cool. Yes. Uh, I don't know if it's officially out yet. I know they did a Kickstarter to get it started. Uh, I don't um, believe so. If it has, I haven't seen an update. Yeah. Uh, so Infinity has a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff going on. And it's one that's continuing to be developed. So that's kind of cool. Uh, next one, Star Wars. Woo! So Star Wars is interesting. It has fewer factions. Because uh, at least fewer obvious factions because it's typically a good versus evil thing although as you dig into it more you find the huts and the pike syndicates and there's crime lords and there's local groups and all sorts of other little things but typically there's usually a single good versus evil thing as the main conflict because well george lucas likes his stuff simple rebels good um, space fa space fascist bad Yes, uh, but beyond that, Star Wars is interesting because of the places in it, not the factions. What makes Star Wars an interesting setting is the planets, the places you can go to. Uh, and partially, it's that they're very themed. For example, you have a planet that's all desert, Tatooine. You have a planet that's all forest, Endor. You have a planet that's all city, Coruscant. You have a planet that's all swamp, Dagobah. Don't you think too much about the ecology. Yeah, don't think too much about the ecology. Just go to Cloud World and hang out in Bespin. Or go to um, Lava World on Mustafar. Or go to Ocean Planet. Camino, or go to Ocean Planet Mon Calamari, or I could continue because I know too much about Star Wars. Uh, Jungle Planet, Felucia. I mean, Mustafar yeah. of all the planets is probably the most likely one to exist since it's just young planet with volcanoes. Lava World, yes. But these highly interesting like terrain planets and the sort of cool settings and cities and locations there provided a really strong space opera feel and an interesting way for people, for you to... The setting is interesting because it is full of these cool places with weird aliens and strange life forms and, you know, opportunities for players and people running games to throw you into bizarre scenarios. It's basically how I would run, want to run a Spelljammer-style game. Yes, like, if you're going to run a any sort of science fiction space opera-y game, then the single biome planets are kind of a given, because that's how you keep it moving in space, is that instead of traveling between countries that have different biomes are different you know travel between the city and a forest and the city and on the mountain you go between a planet that's all that's all mountains and a planet that's all forest you just increase the sort of distance but make the but make the planets even more distinct um so that's where that's what star wars really brings to the table to make science fiction settings interesting is 
the setting aspect, the really interesting biomes, the really interesting places to go. And I think that's part of why Star Wars has had such good uh, tabletop games and such good role-playing games, because there's always somewhere interesting to go. And even if there's uh, not, just make a new one and it becomes canon. Just do it. That is, in fact, something that has happened. Uh, in the When we talked about Star Wars role-playing games in another episode, the D6 game, the first of the Star Wars role-playing games, talked a lot about like other planets and other things, and that kind of became source for the expanded universe material, and uh, some of it became actual canon laser cannon um but more than star wars there are other games that have interesting things that are you know make good settings and make it them interesting to do stuff in uh for example tales from the loop i have heard of this one but i don't know anything about it it's an award-winning role-playing game it's a series of art books by artist simon stalenhog and it's a sort of anthology sci-fi series on Amazon Prime. Hmm. Uh, so the art books are set in a, like, Swedish... I think, I think it's Swedish, but Scandinavian in general. Like, island town that had a massive particle accelerator under it. And it's sort of a mixture of, like, retro futurism from the 70s and 80s with weird science fiction, like they have robots and giant towers that are part of this particle accelerator and other sorts of weird things, like weird science. There's dinosaurs that show up. There's robots that wander around. There's, you know, abandoned wreckage and stuff. I have a couple of his art books. It's really cool looking stuff. And in the case of this, it's the aesthetic that it is what makes it a very good setting. Um, the story, the role-playing game, Tales from the Loop, is essentially a kids on bikes, Stranger Things, uh, E.T. style um, game where your kids investigating some sort of strange phenomenon in your small town that is related to whatever. The The core book is just like, okay, it could be this particle accelerator it's related to or something. But you don't have to do that. You could easily make it, you know, a asylum where they're performing experiments to create telekinetic people or whatever. Um, the core idea here is that the aesthetic of it being sort of retro-futuristic, where it is a historical time period, but there is science fiction elements added into the world. You have robots, you have time-displaced dinosaurs, you have, like, flying trucks and stuff. Creates this very strong aesthetic feeling that lets you build an interesting world really quickly. Um, and so that, the, the highly specific nature of the setting is what makes that one really interesting. 
uh, and the idea that you'd use very specific touchstones to sort of set this up. Um, much the same way like Stranger Things uses the music from the time period to really set things up, or the films from the time period to really like lock you down into knowing that this is when this happens. And then throws in science fiction and fantasy stuff and, you know, it sort of nostalgia bombs you a little to get you into it. Them 1980s. Yeah, 1980s nostalgia bomb. Um, you just keep running up that hill. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, what makes that an interesting setting is the specificity of it. It says this is the time period that this is happening and this is the feel that you're trying to do. And it's the, the role-playing system for Tales from the Loop is quite good and worth an episode on its own. I just want to have, you know, just want to play it a few times to really know what I'm talking about. But another one with a very specific aesthetic and some role-playing games from it and some a tabletop game from it. Not really a war game, more of a board game-y thing. The Alien Universe. Alien! Love me some Alien. Yeah, uh, there's a role-playing game for it. There is a tabletop, like, board game with miniatures. I It's not really a war game, because I believe all the aliens are AI-controlled. Um, but it's definitely, you know, a thing. And it's a good setting. Again, kind of due to the aesthetic... I'd say it's, uh, that, like, aesthetic, and then you could also go with kind of the soft science fiction implications of the Alien universe, because it's essentially a sci-fi Gilded Age. Yeah. Um, I would say it's the aesthetic, the sort of uh, CRT... CRT like, punk. CRT punk, like, industrial spaceships. But the other part is the whole... Um, nature of the two villains of the setting. Because there are two villains in every alien thing. <laughs> They're the company, always the same. And the alien. Yep. Um, so villain one is capitalism and <laughs> villain two is nature. Essentially. And that's what you're stuck between. Sounds, and, sounds about right. Yeah, it's man versus corporation like essentially it's a man versus society and a man versus nature thing and i'm using man in the human sense here because it's that that's what you're talking about with these sort of story elements Um, i was i was gonna go with uh alien as being a very heavily feminine coded franchise for yes that is also a nice touch of it to the point so that many of the things. in the Alien RPG, you are not the game master, you are the game mother. Which I like. That's a nice touch. I think game queen would also make sense, you know. Um, Because of the alien queen. Yeah, that also works. It, it just doesn't shorten to GM. The GQ. Yeah. That's a magazine, which is not... Yeah. Neither here nor there. Um... So then let's talk about a much-beloved science fiction setting that hasn't really worked well for gaming. And that's Star Trek. Yeah, what's up with that? 
I'm not sure, but I have some thoughts. Uh, and the first one is that Star Trek doesn't have the same kind of conflict as a lot of these other settings. Um, it's highly episodic, which is fine. Some of the other ones are as well. But the sort of episodic nature of it and the fact that the group size is much larger. Yeah. When you have a ship in Star Trek, it has hundreds of people on board, right? You've got your captain, you've got your science officer, you've got your tactical officer, your security, your doctor, your engineer. And already that's pretty much a full adventuring party. But then you also have to have, a, you know, the party size is very large. Just in terms of like the base crew. And then you have to have all these other people on board running around doing tasks. And that's a lot for a game master to really control. And then, like, in Star Trek, you're kind of always working for... Star Trek stuff typically has people working for the Federation. Or presumably working for someone else. But the level of freedom is less than you might have for a lot of other games. Um, and there have been games set in the Star Trek universe, but they've just never taken off the way some of these other ones have. Yeah, the only for one example, that I'm aware of is the Star Trek trading card game. I was going to talk about the Star Trek... Um, miniatures uh, game using the flight path system that came out <laughs> around the same time as uh, X-Wing, which had the sort of interesting problem of... I'm going to do well, a K-turn with my with my Galaxy-class Star Cruiser. <laughs> well, the first problem was that it was made by WizKids, uh, who are not known for producing incredibly well-designed games or for, you know providing excellent service and uh, quality of their games. They're getting and better, but definitely not at the time uh, when this game came out. No, and there were a lot of issues with the game in general. Um, but essentially, the ships weren't to scale because they couldn't be. They were much smaller than, you know, they were all sort of around the same size of, you know, about one to two inches across. Um and the, there was a lot of stuff that, like, didn't really work great with them. And a lot of mechanics that changed rapidly. Uh, ships moved in a variety of different ways. They could turn and, like, just go side to side. Borg ships uh, could move from any side. That's actually uh, really cool. It's kind. Of, it's quite cool, but the game was incredibly unbalanced, and it didn't have a really strong. Um, the following was never as strong because I feel like it wasn't as. It, it didn't. The mechanics, uh, the flight path mechanics are designed for dogfighting. Yeah. Capital ships don't dogfight. If you wanted, if you wanted a Star Trek game, uh. Star Star Trek 
starship miniatures game like that, you'd be better off with something similar to like Armada, which is, you know, made for capital ships. Yes, that would be my thought, is maybe a slightly shrunken down version of Armada where the ship miniatures aren't quite as large as that, but function more like that. Um, yeah, if, if they had something like that, I would I would be down for playing that. Yeah, that that's probably more the size and speed that you would want because the Star Trek ones were kind of weird. It Trying to dogfight your big clunky spaceships that can fire in all directions was weird. And it didn't, it lasted a surprisingly long time and they produced a, they produced too many models for it, was I think one of the other Oh issues. yeah, there was so many of them and I'm like, who is playing this game? Because there, there are a lot way of too them, many minis. And a lot of them were for weird esoteric factions that most people wouldn't recognize. Um, the ability to find ships for the Federation and the Romulans was actually harder than it should have been. I will say um, there actually there are some old school hex encounter war games now that I've just remembered that are um, Star Trek themed. Uh, I think the company is Amarillo Design Bureau. Uh, yeah. I should have. Um, I would also bring up that Star Trek, I think the best Star Trek game, in my opinion, is Star Trek Ascendancy. Yeah. Which is a board game where you fly your ships around and, you know, explore planets and form fleets and fight each other. And it feels the most, it feels the strongest because it is more about the factions and it emphasizes the exploration, diplomacy, combat sort of triangle that Star Trek balances on, which actually works. It's more of a Star Trek thing than just smashing your ships into each other. Yeah, because like Star Wars is like all all combat and Jedi drama. You don't see a lot of yeah, it is war. You don't see a lot of other uh, things crop up compared to Star Trek, where it's like you need both the the war and you need the politics and you need the drama. And you got to kind of fit all that in. And on just a war game level, that would be very difficult. But if you're doing a grand strategy type board game, it becomes a lot more feasible. Yeah. Um, and so the last setting I want to talk about um, is another one that's science fiction, but it's a different uh, sort of a different genre. And that's Paranoia. Paranoia is a role-playing game from, I believe, the 90s, like early 90s. Uh, I think uh, it might even be further an, than that. I think it might be I'm 80s. Say late 80s to early 90s. Um, it is set in an underground, post-apocalyptic bunker state. It's a city that's built underground because there was a nuclear war or something. And it is ruled by Friend Computer... And the players are troubleshooters who are assigned tasks by friend computer and have to go around and shoot trouble. Um, everyone is a clone. People are secret mutants. There are secret societies. It's a very fun... It's a very funny game. It's got all sorts of weird shenanigans involved. I've played a few versions of it. Um, and the interesting part of the setting of... 
paranoia is the sort of just that the setting in paranoia is one where you know generally what's going on but everything is a parody somehow it's a game based on being based on not taking itself super seriously and also not like you don't get too involved or attached in paranoia your character is a clone and part of a six-pack of clones. <laughs> and if you get killed, the clone, the, like, next clone of the character is dropped off at your location in ten minutes. What, what did I miss? Yeah, so your character can just die in the middle of a mission and their clone will show up to continue the mission. It has happened to me on more than one occasion. Um... Or, for example, if you finish the mission but, like, failed at some objective, friend computer might decide to have the entire team executed. And then, like, if you still have clones remaining, hooray, you did it. Um, or, and various stuff like that. It's weird, it's silly, it's sort of a little Fallout-y, but with the wackiness turned all the way up to 11 and set inside... Um, the massive underground city. Uh, there's some other cool things. Everyone has like a color code that represents your level of authority within the city. Uh, starting with infrared down at the very bottom who are, have no authority. Everyone else can boss them around and then moving up through the spectrum. Uh, ultraviolet is not real. Anyone with information about ultraviolet people is considered a traitor and is to be executed on site. There's a lot of, you know, weird stuff in it, and it's a very silly, very loose setting. And I think what makes it a good setting is that it has these specific things. Friend computer, the various secret organizations, the fact that almost everyone is secretly a mutant, um, but also being a mutant is illegal. So everyone is hiding it from everyone else. Um, the like color-coded system of who's in charge of what. And some of the other nature of this setting is all can all be very specific. But the actual like what goes on day-to-day -day is wacky and off the wall and you know ends up with everyone accidentally killing themselves and friend computer deciding that we're just going to reset and use last year's calendar because the new year's celebration didn't go off as planned. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so paranoia gets by is a good setting because it is specific and wacky at the same time. It taps into a very specific niche, which is, I think one of the things that sci-fi settings can do is if you find a niche that your setting is really good at, then that can be strong. Um, there are a lot of cyberpunk settings. We will do an episode about cyberpunk role-playing games and cyberpunk games uh, on its own. But, you know, those a lot of times, if they're successful, it's because they find a niche that is interesting and that they can fill better than the other games that are out there. Yeah, boy. And the bet and 
and better than other settings that are out there. So, like I said, what makes science fiction settings good for games? Well, they have to have an interesting and, like, wide number of factions for people to play as. They have to have interesting locations for people to go to. They have to have an interesting and, like, strong aesthetic that people can get behind. Uh, they need to have, like, interesting villains and villain options. Uh, they need to have a specific niche that they sort of fill. And Star Trek apparently doesn't do those well enough to really get a lot of good games. Sorry, Star Trek. Sorry, Star Trek. Love you guys. Beam me up, Scotty. Um, but yeah, that's what we have to say about science fiction settings. And Woo! if people like this episode and want me to just talk about a science fiction setting for an hour, I can do that. But before we end this podcast, we have a segment called Board Game Corner. And Ed, I believe you have a board game you want to talk about. Hey, uh... Do you live in Oregon? Are you Oregon adjacent? Or do you just want to die of dysentery? Uh, then you should try the Oregon Trail card game by... Oh, I just had the the name here. Uh, Pressman Toys uh, was the original designer. Came out in like 2014, sometime around there. Was originally distributed just uh, through Target, but now you can find it on Amazon. And it's an attempt to translate the original uh, Oregon Trail PC game into a card game. It's a pretty simple, lightweight card game. It's not anything super serious. So if you have a group that, you know, you just want to put down some cards and uh, be kind of goofy with it, that's probably what it's best for. Uh, but basically, <clears throat> each, each player uh, is their own little person on the wagon train you have supplies and you go around you draw cards off the top of the deck that'll tell you like what happens on the trail sometimes it'll tell you to just you know keep drawing cards until something specific happens um you have like calamity cards that you know can kill off players um last time i played i think i died of frostbite because our wagon broke down and we had to walk the rest of the way to oregon <laughs> um but basically, you start in Independence, Missouri, and have to make it all the way to Oregon. And once you've put in, put together uh, 50 trail cards, you've made it to Oregon. And the whole group wins if at least one person from the wagon train makes to Oregon. So, unfortunately, it does have the dreaded player elimination mechanic. Um, I guess to maybe ease that pain a little bit, it does come with... Uh, dry erase headstones that you can write the name of your uh, character on as they've died, kind of like you could in the old Oregon Trail board game or nice. PC I, game. I will, I will say, the original Oregon Trail, the like actual one, also had a player elimination mechanic, so that's uh, fair enough. Yeah, it's it works. It's just that the player elimination works a bit differently when it's one person playing on a computer versus six people playing a card game. I didn't mean um, the computer game. I meant the actual physical trail to the state of Oregon. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it is historically historically accurate in that sense, so... Yes, player elimination was... Game? Yeah, player elimination was a thing on that. 
yeah, and you can you can use your supplies to like counteract various things that happen. Um, and they're essentially like your your shield or your extra lives. Um, you can sacrifice your uh, supplies in order to you know keep going along the trail as long as you can. Um, like I said, it's pretty lightweight, but it's you know not a, not meant to be a serious game. I think it uses the old graphics from the original computer game, which is a nice touch. Uh, they also came out with a pseudo sequel, somewhat expansion um, of the hunting mini game where you walk around and try and shoot all the little critters to gain food. Um, I have that one, but I just never got around to playing it. But you can either play it independently as its own little game, or if you want to try and stop for extra food and supplies at certain spots. You can play that as a little side game uh, to get some extra meats, which as far as like playing another game outside of a game that's already in progress, I don't know how well that would work as a mechanic, but maybe sometime in the future when the pandemic is hypothetically over, we'll try Oregon Trail again and try it with the hunting mechanic. But yeah, if you... If you want to uh, have some nostalgia for the Oregon Trail or you're just a fan of that meme and want a, a really kind of no thought required type of card game, uh, I'd say give the Oregon Trail a try. It's at least good for some laughs. Yeah. And and maybe you'll get to Oregon. Yeah, maybe you'll make it. And then, um, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff that can kill you out here. Sasquatch, serial killers, aliens. But you avoided the dysentery. Yeah. Um, rattlesnakes occasionally, not so much, honestly. The northwest rattlesnakes are pretty chill. Yeah, I don't think I've even ever seen a rattlesnake out here. Uh, we don't have them west of the Cascades. Yeah, but I've also, I've also spent a lot of time east of the Cascades, out in out in the desert areas, and even then, I never never saw a rattlesnake anywhere. But they're out yeah, there somewhere. Uh, the Pacific Northwest rattlesnakes are generally, I'm, I'm not a, like, herpetologist here. I don't do snakes as a day thing. But I've read that the Pacific Northwest rattlesnakes are much shyer than their southwestern cousins. They avoid people much more and are, you know, much less likely to bite you. They just Dude, I'm just trying to live my life out here. Just leave me alone. Yes. Yes. Respect to the snakes. Yep. So yeah, Oregon Trail. I had fun with it. You might too. I don't know. I don't know you. You might die of dysentery. Yeah. Just get like an actual little vial of uh, dysentery to go into the uh, into the box for an authentic experience. Do not do that. <laughs> Alright, whoever's alive at the end wins the game. It's the most dangerous game. I thought knife tennis was the most dangerous game. Knife tennis. <laughs> Here, here's a thing for you. Oregon Trail, but in space. There's a sci-fi game for you. Alright. I'll get working on that. I mean, I can't um, think of anything off the top of my head that act would actually match that, so maybe there is a kernel of an idea in there. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that one. Um... Yeah, I, I I can think of mechanics and ideas for what it would be about anyways, so... You've died of space dysentery. You've died of alien chestbursters. Sonic diarrhea, you don't want that one. Yes. <laughs> it, 
Electric gonorrhea, the noisy killer. I feel like there should have been a Futurama board game by now. I think that one could have could have well, been something good. I, if Futurama's coming back, then there might be. Because hmm. I think they are talking about making new episodes and stuff, right? So maybe they'll end up making a board game for it, because they make board games for everything now. Yeah. I had I had an idea at one point of where it would be kind of a, a group win situation where you're on the ship trying to complete a task and you either have to all fail or all succeed. But at the same time, everybody has like their own secret objectives or their own secret thing they're trying to do. So even though you win as a group, you still have some players who win more than others because that just that's a Futurama plot. <laughs> that's just how it works. That seems sus. Yep. Uh, in any case, that's our podcast. As always, Woo! thank you for listening. Uh, follow us on social media. We are at Knoll Country on Twitter and Knoll Country on Instagram. Like, subscribe, review, blah, 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 whatever you want. Uh, don't let us tell you what to do. Join a union. Support uh, charities. Uh, don't die of dysentery if you're going to Oregon. Ed? your prop what things you want to say oh boy uh you can follow me on instagram and Adam madness i'll probably have some beauty shots of my game of thrones stuff up there since they're like 99 percent complete at this point um and then also give some cash dollars to tra- uh true colors united to help all the homeless queer kids out there donate to your reproductive justice funds uh Support the Ukrainians and the Palestinians. Don't talk to cops. Join a union. All the all the things. Smash and subscribe. I don't know. That's all I got. Yeah. Uh, and as always, go Knowles. Go Knowles. <laughs>